This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Fatimeh Keshavarz. She's professor of Persian and comparative literature at Washington University in St. Louis. I spoke with her on January 17, 2007, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of KWMU in St. Louis. This interview is included in our show, The Ecstatic Faith of Rumi. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Oh, hi, Krista. It's just Fatima. Oh, nice to have you on the other end there. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> I was here actually from half an hour ago, and I think there were oh, other things were? going on. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was here from, but that's fine. I was looking at my notes. I was yeah. trying to not flood myself with too many things. I know. <laughs> well, I've been having the same trouble getting ready for this. So I, I think we just have to have an experience and let this conversation right. be what it is. Exactly. Well, my husband always says he's roomy anyway. There's plenty of room about <laughs> doing things. <laughs> Every time I go back to do some other article or something, he says, well, he is roomy, isn't he? <laughs> is your husband Turkish originally? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you have you have all of the poles of Rumi's life together in your family. I would like to think so. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, Mitch, um, how, what do you need? Do you need... Let me... Um, I, could you? I would like to hear you say your name, so I'm sure that I say it correctly when the time comes. Sure, Fatima Keshavars. All right. And Mitch, do you need to hear Fatima speak a little bit more? All right. Um, let's talk about something mundane. Tell me what you had for lunch, so we don't talk about anything substantive yet. Um, I, I had a, a bagel <laughs> and some cream cheese and coffee. Okay. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about how I'm imagining this before we get started, and it may take uh-huh. a completely different direction. I'm open to surprise. Um, okay. You know, you know, and I know that, that there are many people out there who've read Rumi or seen Rumi quoted, um, and uh-huh. then there are also plenty of people who don't really know Rumi. Mm-hmm. And and I I kind of think that whether they've read a little bit or none, um, we're going to, this is going to be kind of a fresh introduction. But through... Mm-hmm your passion and your life's encounter with the writing and the thought and also the cultural context of this of this person sure so um so we'll just see where it goes <laughs> i have some ideas Th- that's absolutely great right. i think that's how he would do it so. okay good good and i mean yeah. i want to a- you know i want to ask you some questions about about themes and but or, or ideas or but but at any moment, if you feel like you want to pull something out and read it, just let's do that as well. Sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I had thought that um, maybe it would have helped if, you know, we talked earlier. But actually, there's something about doing this spontaneously. I, I, that I, I really prefer. That. And also, okay. you know, it's a little bit riskier, but I think... Um, Whatever happens between us uh, will be happening in the moment, and the listener is there as well. And if we have a, if we have a conversation beforehand, we, uh, that's that's not all available to everyone else. So they'll be right. part of this I experience. I mean, it's not it's not scripted. So no, that, that's not great. at all. That's yeah. great. Um, so I'm, Mitch, I'm uh, actually then on that note, I should inform you that I have just translated the Ghazal last week. Um, because my friend Piraye, one of the composers in the music group, mm-hmm. has put a beautiful song on that ghazal. Oh. So um, 
we would be able to afterwards send you the performed uh, piece. That would be wonderful. Uh, and so maybe at some point in the show, I read that Ghazal, oh, which is which is absolutely beautiful. Okay. In, and then I thought, I don't know. Um, I've done this in the on the local radio, and it seemed to work fine. But mm-hmm. you should tell me how it works in in the program for you. Um, I would do a few lines of Persian, and then I would read the English for those, no, and then so switch yeah. so that they're not so that the audience is not caught for too long with words they don't understand, but at the same time that they get the the music of it, which I think is very important. No, that's wonderful. And, um, you know, I've had many different people on the show. I think uh, Omid Safi has read some uh, Rumi yes. in Persian also previously, and it's, it's really important. And yes. I, I'm getting a, I'm going to listen for a moment in my headphones. My engineer is saying something to me, or, or were you? No? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is that is that better? Oh, okay. Um, he he's saying that when you just remember when you pull out something to read, stop talking for a moment and let that paper oh, sound sure. go away. Now we're not live. We will edit this down later, okay. and we'll be able to, you know, the, edit those pieces. Yeah, out. yeah, and pull the readings sure. out. So it, the the great luxury of this is we get to have a real conversation, and um, you know, if you read something, you want to read it again or we want to go back to something we can do that as well so maybe we should start oh something else <laughs> yes. is that um i brought a piece of music by leon and it's just as a track on there which is just a combination of tar the persian instrument the tar the mm-hmm. flute and marimba okay and um three of the uh, members of the group play that um if you like, you know, I can either play that, you know, we I don't know, we, we could probably play it in the background or I could, you know, we could send you the CD, whichever. Right. Um, we'll probably want to um, to get a copy of that. Even if you played it right now, we would probably need to get it for the program. So, um, and we might even talk about this after the interview or you and Colleen could exchange because we we will love to hear or see anything that you want to send us and, and think about putting that in the show. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. But if you feel like playing something because you need to talk about it, we can do that as well. Um, and also because um, I don't know, if, uh, Mary should tell me at this end if that's something that's comfortable mm-hmm. for them to do. Um, for me, hearing the music is very inspirational. So it just kind of pl- it helps with the right um, with the reading. Well, but and I think that's important. If it's important for you, it's it's great yeah. with me. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, can we do that? If I give you a CD, thank you. Okay. okay. So I'm going to give that CD to Mary. Okay. Well, you know, Mitch, what I... Th- oh, I know what you're saying. All right. Well, well, let's worry about that when we get to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, just briefly, uh, this... Uh, excuse me. Mm-hmm. It's a track number six. Okay. okay. And you'll... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, Fatima, when you, when you do that, um, we will want you to play the music and then speak separately so that we can actually play this music with the full sound in the program, um, even if it's under you, because uh, does that make sense? So you might play the music. um, Is that right, Mitch? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. We we, we kind of need you to speak separately from the music, because if we lay it under you in the program, we would still probably take the CD directly from here. Does that make sense? Yeah. How can I do that? 
is if, if if there's yeah. a way to do it, I'm happy to do it. Okay. Well, let <laughs> let's w- let's worry about it when we um when we uh, get to if we get to that point. Okay. See how it works. <laughs> Tell me though, first of all, this poet, mystic, uh, religious teacher who we in the West call Rumi. Um, that is not his name. That was not his birth name. That's not <laughs> yeah. what people all over the world call him. What do you call him? Right. Um, I call him Molana, which means um, our master. Mm-hmm. And that's what every Persian speaker calls him. Mm-hmm. His full name is actually Jalaluddin Muhammad, son of Muhammad. So, um, and uh, also some, sometimes he's referred to as Balkhi because... Uh, he was born actually not in Balkh, but somewhere outside Balkh, about 35 kilometers, you know, southeast of the city of Dushanbe. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is now in Afghanistan. Yes, mm-hmm. near a river um, known as Vakhshab. And so, you know, it, co- it was close to Balkh, so people do also refer to him as Balkhi. Okay. Um, Rumi is almost um, not known by Persian speakers. They now know that he's known in the West as Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> <But> that's, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I, I will be able to tell a little bit, I will tell a little bit of his story and his history in setting up the program. I, don't, I think we want to only refer to that this hour as we as we reflect on, you know, what what he had to say and, and how you interpret that in, uh, now and, and, you know, setting that in his culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to just, I do want to ask this. I mean, you have called him um, a world-class thinker concerned with issues relevant to our painfully compartmentalized world. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I wonder if you look back at the time and the place in which he lived is there something in that 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 makes his words and ideas echo so compellingly? You know, they started to really echo in the West in the late 20th century. Um, is mm-hmm. there some mm-hmm. some concurrence well, between um, his time and ours or his place yeah. and ours? Yeah. Well, he certainly lives in a turbulent time. Um, in the, the city of Konya, um, has it is 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 a multicultural city. It's a city in which people speak Turkish, um, some speak Persian, and of course Arabic is a language of worship and religion. And so, um, you know, he is in an environment which is very diverse, and um, because this follows the um, uh, Mongol invasion in the region, um, he's also aware of the of the turbulence uh, going in the background so in a sense he is trying to deal with all those issues that people have to face in an environment like that okay. um, b- but i would say that um, probably one of the reasons why he addresses the issues that are of concern to us so much today is because he belongs to a tradition the Sufi tradition or the mystical tradition within Islam, which has always been concerned with these issues, with mm. the issues of the way human beings view themselves and each other and are able to relate to each other. So in a way, and I always tell my students, and, and they're so surprised, he's really the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> there are so right. many others who who do address similar concerns. And, um, you know, you could look at it from different angles. You could look at it uh, from a purely um, theological perspective and say, for him, the reason for the entire creation is love. 
you know, mm-hmm. angels are great. They're pure. They are, you know, they worship God. Um, everything about them is ideal, but they don't know love. Okay. <laughs> but 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 in that universe, okay. they don't. And you know, the the imperfect, hard-headed, forgetful, you know, human beings, they are capable of falling in love. That's why God created them. Hmm. He wanted them to fall in love, and that love is very all-encompassing. It's not just loving God. It's loving God as reflected in the entire universe. Hmm. So if you look at it from that perspective, uh, whatever else is going on outside, and there's always going to be issues that as human beings we argue about or fight about, that background of what is the purpose for being here? It's an enduring right. theme in, in, in human history and human exactly. life. Right. Exactly. So I'm being a little bit ahistorical with that, no, but no, on purpose. Good. Right, okay. Um, because I think it's important to look at the fact that that's the theme and the background. Mm. Now, you were born in the southwestern Iranian city of Shiraz. And mm-hmm. I wonder, is that right? Yes. Okay. Do you remember when you first heard Rumi, or what is your first memory of learning about this person and these these thoughts, these mm-hmm. poetry, these writings? Well, it actually would be very difficult to go back to the first one because, like that theme uh, theme of love in the background, his poetry was in the background all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I I just uh, I grew up in a family in which people played chess, read poetry. Or argued about poetry. That was basically. <laughs> but I think and, that wasn't and, so unusual yeah. in the context of of your of that culture in Iran as it as it would be. No, no in the it West, isn't. Right? No, it isn't. You know, mm. I I always remember it, only after I left Iran, I realized that that's probably not what everyone else does all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what? But so in this landscape where where poetry of all kinds, including uh, poetry woven into religious sensibility. I mean, where, what did Rumi mean in that landscape? How, how was he part of the, of the spiritual sensibility of that world you grew up in? Well, he was um, a voice that um, echoed something that was on one level very familiar, because a lot of other people had talked about it, but on another level, it was completely new because of the way he played with it, <laughs> the way he made it his own game. And, and I mean game because playing is very serious for him. Laughing and playing are the most serious li- things in, in his poetry. Right. And you should be able to do that. So um, he, for me, he came into the picture as someone who said, okay, you've read the text, you know the words, you've looked at the history, now transcend all that. Put it aside and live it. Encounter it. So I, if you ask me to uh, think of a few words that for me describe his poetry, one of them is, it's an encounter. Hmm. You face something. You come face to face with something. Um, I never forget, I was once reading a ghazal that described as beautiful birds. You know, he said. The ghazals are uh, odes, what we would translate as it's really something a little bit different than a poem, right? A, a more yes. Ghazals, uh, what Ghazal is about um, 8 to 10, 12 lines normally, although his could be much shorter or much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the main theme is love, and there is not one kind of um, continuing 
Um, there's not narrative continuity, if you like. So there are these, these are like flashes of ideas okay. that, that come. So I was reading one of those, and he was describing these beautiful birds. You know, some can sing, some are colorful, and so forth. And I was, you know, enjoying the walk in the aviary. And he suddenly said, well, what kind of a bird are you? <laughs> and, you know, and it, it, it's all of a sudden I realized I can't stay on the margins. You know, you have to join in. And I think in a way, the whirling is exactly a reflection of that. So he, f he kind of comes into the tradition with all the intellectual legacy, but he says that's not enough. You have to do something else with it, which is um, face it, play with it, dance it, bring it into your, you know, everyday life. You know, something that strikes me um, is that there are a lot. There are there a lot of themes in in his writing and his poetry that you might call ascetic. Um, you know, he's mm -hmm. he's very aware of the limits of the body and of the physical sure. and of the importance yeah. of the spiritual in that equation. And yet, um, there's something incredibly sensual at the same time that he's ascetic. I mean, you mentioned the whirling. The, yes. We think of the whirling dervishes. There's dance right. and music. Um, Yes. I, I would say that it's all on the same continuum of human experience. We are not divided into body and soul mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, although he, he does talk about body and soul, and, and there's no question about the fact that the soul is exalted. Ultimately, the goal is to purify the soul and so on and so forth. But we don't have to think of our, the rest of ourselves as base or as not. Uh, in fact, it's a tool. It's a tool. It's a part mm -hmm. of us the, that's very the, important. Our physical lives are f that's very important. Sorry. That's okay. He does say in one verse, he says, love, whether of this kind or that kind, and obviously it's either, you know, the, the kind of divine, spiritual, or the human-to-human -human love, um, ultimately leads you to the same king. So in a way, one is a practice for the other. Including sort of physical love. or um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, he does sometimes speak about, refer to the body as a prison, or, or really it's, it's when we become too attached and entangled um, and weighed down by physical realities, yeah. right? Yeah. The limits of it are recognized. Mm -hmm. So he does refer to the limits of it. There are things you can do with it, but then you will get to the limit, and you won't be able to go beyond that. So there's no question that he acknowledges the limits. But um, I wouldn't see it as the body is not an obstacle on the way of the soul. Okay. It's a tool to be used for that journey. And as you you mentioned the whirling, and uh, you know some people may only know uh, of the whirling dervishes and not even know that Rumi was behind that. Um, something you wrote about whirling that was so gripping to me. You said that for Rumi, the whirling is one way to stay centered while moving. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, because I think moving is essential to his poetry. Um, and you know, and I, I do some speculation in, in my work 
does this have something to do with the fact that he traveled so young when we're not exactly sure how old he was, but he certainly was not much old, somewhere between the age of six to eight, um, that he went all the way um, westwards from east of Iran, from the province of Khorasan to where is the city of Konya today, present day mm-hmm. Turkey. And the journey lasted about two years. He must have encountered so many different peoples and cultures and, and incidents. Um, so may have something to do with that or, or whatever uh, other experience he might have had. But he's certainly very appreciative of moving, of the ability to change your vantage point. Hmm. You know, it's, at some point he says in dis- his discourses, he says, um, if you don't plow the earth, it's going to get so hard, nothing grows in it. You just plow the earth of yourself. You just get moving. And even don't ask exactly what's going to happen. You allow yourself to move around, and then you will see the benefit. Hmm. So yes, he is, moving is, moving is uh, central. But of course, you can't lose your center. You can't, you, have to, you can't just drift. So in a way, whirling is a very interesting example of being rooted. And in, in in the earth, in the tradition, in whatever keeps you centered, uh, but at the same time appreciate the fact that that you're moving. Is there also something in um, the whirling dervishes, as we call them, in 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 that kind of movement that um, that has its roots and essence in the religious thought of of Sufism or of Islam? Um, I'm not sure that I understand. Um, do, do you mean has there been uh, have there been other instances of of no, whirling? I guess I mean, um, is there something in that 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 strikes you as very compatible with with Islamic theology in in general or with Sufi theology that might not well, be apparent to an outsider? Well, I think you could say that. Um, everything in the universe is whirling, is quickened with the force of love. I mean, that fits with the, with the Sufi theology. And so we are like, like the planets. Um, we have to appreciate that. And in order to appreciate that, you have to join the dance. But there are also you know, there are interpretations. We can now look at um, whirling and say things. Like, for example, one hand is um, pointed towards the sky and the other one to the earth. So that's usually interpreted as bringing the heaven and the earth together, mm-hmm. like staying connected with the two. Or the dervishes wear a black robe and a white robe underneath, and then they dis- they disrobe the black robe and they dance in their white. Um, that inter- that's interpreted as the shedding of the ego. Right. But then the master standing in the center doesn't have to do it because he supposedly has tamed his ego. But all of these things have been interpretations later um, done of the activity of whirling. Mm -hmm. Um, Beyond that, I don't know if, you know, to me it it comes across as something much more, much broader and more universal than Islam or any other religion. It's a kind of, 
getting in tune with the moving earth. Mm-hmm. I also see it, since you talk about play being such an important part of Rumi's poetry and thought, that yeah. it is an expression of that as well. And maybe not, you know, maybe we don't have to make no, it that I, much I more ag- complicated. Yes, I, and I, w- I would agree. You know that um, the story about how it started is that it was in the coppersmith's market and there you can hear all these sounds of hammers and chisels. To this day, if you go to the Middle East and certainly in Iran uh, in uh, coppersmith's market um, you you have all these various craftsmen working with little hammers and chisels and so it's very musical mm. and very playful. So um, yes, I would say that there's a very strong element of play there, but it's also a very controlled play. It's it's controlled ecstasy. It's it's reminding ourselves that uh, play also has its limits. So I think it's an interesting combination of both of them. Hmm. Hmm. You know, you've you've spoken a lot about love, and love is the core of um, of this poetry and this spirituality. I. I think that also in the Persian culture in which you grew up and Rumi Mm -hmm. as well, there is a connection between love poetry and imagery of the beloved and lovers with religious ideas, which again, you kind of have to uh, introduce a Westerner into. So talk to me a little bit about that. Um, The imagery uh, is very often... uh, almost identical with profane, uh, you know, mundane love poetry. And um, by this, I don't mean to give any negative connotation <laughs> to it, but <laughs> but love that is purely sensual and, um, you know, emotional and human love. And there, there have been discussions of, you know, why did the Sufis adopt this language, and some people have even argued that this language isn't really suited to Sufi poetry and Mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. Um, To me, uh, I think it's a statement by poets like Rumi and others like him that there isn't really a boundary between the two. It's the same thing. It's the same human experience. And uh, there is a um, medieval, uh, another medieval uh, Sufi, actually a bit later than Rumi, who says that um, you can't look at the sun directly, but you can look at its reflection in the water. Now, our (laughs) humanly experience of love is that reflection in the water of our senses. And it's God's way of teaching us and guiding us from this to the actual, you know, the real looking at the sun when we have gained the ability. So I, I see that um, all that love imagery fits perfectly with the uh, mystical experience that Rumi and others like him experience because it's talking about the same thing. Hmm. It's just, as far as they're concerned, it's a continuation of that. Go on. It just the, the, you, I was just thinking of a particular ghazal. Yes, I, was, I, w- I wanted to I ask that. if you and, had you know, anything you would read or <laughs> yeah, recite. Yes. Yeah, I think that that actually could help um, mm-hmm. see how uh, one uh, one would lead to the other, and actually the ambiguity between the two. Mm-hmm. It's a great. It's a source of great poetic force. And you mean one? You have to, and the other would be divine human love and divine human love, love and divine mm-hmm. love exactly. A 
Okay, I don't know if I should explain the word hooties, <laughs> the, the heavenly uh, beauties. Okay. Um, and uh, so that the, he, he uses it in this poem. And incidentally, they do have a male counterpart too, because this word has been discussed before. <laughs> so <laughs> these heavenly beauties, female heavenly beauties, they also have a male counterpart in heaven. And, right. um, but um, let me read the poem. If anyone asks you about the Huris, show your face. Say like this. If anyone asks you about the moon, Climb up the roof, say like this. If anyone seeks a fairy, let them see your countenance. If anyone talks about the aroma of musk, untie your hair, say like this. If anyone asks, how do the clouds uncover the moon? Untie the front of your robe, knot by knot, say like this. If anyone asks, if anyone asks, how did Jesus raise the dead? Kiss me on the lips, say like this. If anyone asks, what are those killed by love like? Direct them to me, say like this. If anyone kindly asks you how tall I am, show him your arch eyebrows, say like this. So the whole ghazal mm. is a description. The whole ghazal is a description of the beauty of the, the physical beauty of the beloved. But at the same time, it leads us at the end of the. It's a, it's a fairly long poem at the end to blind with envy the one who says, "How can a human being reach God? Give each of us a candle of purity." Say, like this. In the end, mm. human beings can get to that candle of purity and reach God, and all human beings um, can do that. It is also um, an act of mm, pointing at what is now, right? What is physical and human, as you say, as the only way we have of imagining. Exactly. Exactly. There's a famous uh, Sufi tale that this young disciple who approached the master to enter the order um, day after day, and, and finally the master said, have you ever fallen in love with a woman? He said, well, not yet. I, I'm only 18. He said, well, go try that first. <laughs> and it, it, it may be a made-up story. Yeah. A lot of these stories, you know, you can't really historically prove that they happened. But the very fact that they circulated and they were cherished as um, wisdom, mm -hmm. you know, something we need to listen to, shows that the tradition was very much aware of the fact that we as human beings have to use our human earthly abilities to understand ourselves and to make progress whatever we need to do we have to do it with our human ability and our senses our physical being is a very important part of that mm -hmm. i want to also ask you about this theme that i i think is in rumi i mean it's he's such a it's such a vast body of work but there's this the poem of the reed right of, oh yeah is that the first poem it, it's the opening um, to his um, 
compendium of um, speculative mysticism, as okay. it's known, the Mass Navi, okay. um, the rhyming couplets. So that's uh, purposely written to clarify issues related to Sufism, what is in the, the journey, the spiritual journey, how okay. do we get there? And that's the opening of that, yes. And I'm not sure I understand this, so I, I may be getting this wrong, but there's a there's a theme that is part of that that runs all the way through about separation and longing mm-hmm. um, as part of, well, not just the spiritual life, but but being human. And, mm-hmm. and also... Uh, a kind of sense that <laughs> that the separation and the longing themselves are a kind of arrival, or that that it is through separation and longing that, and only yeah. through that, that we can arrive yeah. at what we're longing yeah. for. <laughs> but you oh, can yeah. s- you t- say it better than I just said it. I, I I'd like no, to understand. I, I agree this. with you. Okay, I actually agree with you. Um, on one level, you have to get on the road. You have to get started. You know, just like the earth that, you know, have to plow the earth, you have to get moving. On another level, um, he, time and again, he reminds us that the destination is the journey itself. So there isn't a point where you say, okay, I'm here, I've reached, I'm done, I'm perfect. I, I don't need to do anything anymore. It's a continuous process of, in another way, whirling. That's exactly it. Whirling is a journey that you don't stop at one point and mm. end in another. Mm-hmm. You just keep whirling. In the incompleteness of that, the need to move forward is inherent in that incompleteness, in the process of going forward, that, that you make yourself better and better and you, in a way, never reach. So the separation, you, I, I agree with you, the separation is the powerful force that keeps you going. If you ever felt that I have arrived, I've reached, this is it, then you wouldn't go any further and the journey is in fact infinite. So some level of of separation is always there, something that pulls you constantly. And you know, and I think it it is counterintuitive in our culture, not that we necessarily think this through very often, but we think of desires and longings as something that we need to find something to meet, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and we and want it, we, and we want to meet it really fast. Yes, and because, because somehow, somehow <laughs> yes. the feeling of longing yeah. and separation from whatever it is, especially if we don't know what it is we want, that that is, um, that yeah. is, is un- unsatisfying and there's something wrong with that yes. and yet what Rumi is saying is that you know the longing itself is redemptive yes and is the progress longing, <laughs> yes and the longing itself and also not to understand exactly what that longing is in itself is very productive and I think there's something else in our current science-oriented culture and I don't want to put down science by any means I think you know that's a that's a different debate and absolutely there is value in searching for answers but I think one um, idea or major concept that his tradition the Sufi tradition and Rumi in particular have to contribute to our current culture is valuing perplexity the fact (laughs) that not knowing is a source of learning, a source, something that propels us forward um, into finding out. And of course, the more you go forward, the more you know how perplexed you are. So it, it becomes a perpetual, again, 
a whirling process. But I agree with you, longing, perplexity, these are all very valuable things um, that as human beings we should not give up. We should not, we, we want to unravel things and get answers and be done. But as far as he's concerned, um, it's, it's a continual process. We can't be done. And, and you know, good. There's, the, there's this passage of one of his poems that I, um, uh, I mean, as you, you and I said at the beginning, there's so much to look through. And I, but this was yes. in Coleman Barks' collection, The Essential Roomie. And um, uh-huh. he, it, it just, this jumped out at me. Because I also have a feeling that Rumi is saying we also, though, at the same time, need to be intentional about what we choose to be perplexed by. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, there's this mm. poem, Stay Bewildered in God and Only That. Those of you yeah. who are scattered, simplify your worrying lives. There is one righteousness. Water the fruit trees and don't water the thorns. Be generous mm-hmm. to what nurtures the spirit and God's luminous reason light. Don't mm-hmm. honor what causes dysentery and knotted up tumors. Don't feed mm-hmm. both sides of yourself equally. The spirit and the body carry different loads and require different attentions. <laughs> yes, yes. I think this takes us back to what we were talking about about whirling, about mm-hmm. ecstasy and control. See, it there is, yes, perplexity is important. Yes, moving forward, being hard-headed, not being afraid, all of those things are important. But at the same time, it has to be guided. Hence, having a guide on the road. And also, that in, in, in the, in the uh, whirling process, if you actually watch the dervishes do that, it on one level it's fairly organized, ritualized, and controlled. So um, yes, I, I I agree that um, it ca- the, the the energy can't go in all directions completely uncontrolled, mm-hmm. and you have to you have to choose because we have we have one life. You have to spend it wisely. So absolutely, he would say, choose, be selective, recognize your own value. It's another point you said, oh, you, he says, you are an astrolabe to God, you know. <laughs> Don't use yourself <laughs> for things that are not worthwhile. But I want to uh, linger a little bit on that idea of being scattered because that's a, that's a key concept okay. in, in Sufi thought. And actually, it's something that the Buddhists also talk about a mm-hmm, lot. Mm-hmm. And that is our mind just jumps from one thing to the other. And it, it, you know, the, the Sufis call it the onrush of ideas into our minds. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, if, if we allow it, it takes us over, you know. You know, what am I going to do about that credit card? You know, how am I going right, to, right. what, what do I do about the student's paper? And, you know, whatever else is you are con- that you're concerned with, my family, my kids, my future. So it all invades your life. And so in a way, you're pulled in all directions. You're scattered. So one of the purposes of his poetry and one of the concepts the Sufis talk about is to collect that um, scatteredness, bring one to the center, bring one together so that you could be together and direct your energy in a worthwhile direction. Do you have a poem on that subject or another that, you know, again, that is important to you in, in or a ghazal that is important to you in kind of essential themes, yes. central themes of Rumi? 
And I'd love for you yes. to read a little bit in Persian as well. Before, oh, really? Before, yeah, oh, okay. Sure, I'd love to do yeah, that because yeah. I, 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 I love the sound of um, the way he plays with the music of the, mm. the language. Actually, if I may, I would like to read a ghazal, which I have translated very recently, as recently as last week. Okay. <laughs> and and um, one of the reasons why I translated this particular ghazal is it's called The Promise, and it's about steadfastness about staying centered and keeping your eye on the goal but at the same time very much being in love and allowing the ecstasy of love take over Um, one of the more mundane reasons why I translated it is because um, my musician friend Piraye Purafar is putting a song on this you know my um, musician friends in the Leon Ensemble. Mm-hmm. We work together on many of these poems. And so she's done a beautiful tune on this particular ghazal and we're hoping to perform that. So I thought to do a special translation myself. Okay. So I'd like to read that Good. for you. قدهی دارم بر کف به خدا تا تو نیایی حل تا روز قیامت نه بنوشم نه بریزم سهرم روی چو ماهت شب من زلف سیاهت به خدا بیرخ ماهت نه بخسبم نه بخیزم When pain arrives side by side with your love I promise not to flee When you ask me for my life, I promise not to fight. I'm holding a cup in my hand. By God, if you do not come till the end of time, I promise not to pour out the wine, nor to drink a sip. Your bright face is my day. Your dark curls bring the night. If you do not let me near you, I promise not to go to sleep, nor to rise. The Jalal to Jalilam, the Dalal to Dalilam, Kimanas Nasle Halilam, Kedarin all Tashatizam. Bedhan Obsekuse, Kinna Eshris Doruze, Chunamos as to Cheruze, Rameto, Vojabo Molzam. The Hoda, Shahad Derachti, Kinado Ratzeto Bachti, Ayarash Ob the Hadiam, Shavadu, Kundayahizam. Your magnificence has made me a wonder. Your charm has taught me the way of love. I'm the progeny of Abraham. I'll find my way through fire. Please let me drink water from the jug. This love is not a short-lived fancy. It is a daily prayer, the year after year fast. I live it like an act of worship till the end of my life. But then a tree, blessed not with fruits of your bounty, will be dry wood to fire, even if it drinks the ocean. Be paridel suye bala, be paro qovat mola, ke daran sadr mualla, chotoi nist molazem. Hamagan, وقت بلاها به ستایند خدا را تو شب و روز محیا چو فلک حازم و جازم صفت مفخر تبریز نگویم به تمامت چه کنم 
رشک نخواهد که منان قالی بیزم With the wings of the friend fly, O oh my heart Fly and look upward For high on the peak of presence Earthlings like you will not be let in Others praise God at the time of affliction You stay awake day and night Be steady, watchful Like the wheel of the firmament Time to stop speaking of the friend Jealousy won't let me scatter more perfume to the wind. Okay. Hmm. What do you hear in that? What do you, what does that make you, what do you reflect on in that? I find in it the promise to stay. You see, he is very aware of the fact that as human beings we are limited. We have our limits. We just are not able to do everything that we desire to do. Our rationality is there, is very helpful. It does its job in questioning things and showing the way, but that has its limits too. What opens the way beyond that is love. (laughs) What enables us to feel the pain and still go forth? in the face of all of that, is experiencing that love. This, that is the point where you would say, you know, I'll take it all. I, and if you, look at, if you look at our lives, you know, people who produce great works of art, who are creative, who, who do something that goes beyond the day-to-day activities, have that kind of steadfastness, that kind of devotion that lets them go through. So he says, What I see in that poem is that I promise to have that, but that comes from you. It's your magnificence, your love that gives me that energy, that power to stay, and I promise to hold on to it. And you is the beloved, is God, is Allah. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's where the ambiguity ca- comes in. Of course, <laughs> uh, you know, and you you can in this particular case, in the end, particularly, becomes very clear that this the friend, this friend is God. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are so many other ghazals where you could read them either ways. Again, intentionally, mm-hmm. because you should be able to relate to it as a human being in love with another human being. That would be your entry into the poem. And I think it's also probably important to note that Rumi had a great turning point in um, with a friendship uh, w- w- with the Shams, who is known as Shams, right? A teacher, yes. a Sufi master. Um, well, you tell that story so that there was this human relationship, which, which I don't know, from what I read, doesn't seem to have been a... Um, a sexual relationship, but a very intimate, um, mm-hmm. personal mm-hmm. friendship, and uh, I, and that yeah. was a context for a lot of his initial passionate writing. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, it, it's you know, Shams was um, in his sixties um, when he came. He's a this is a basket weaver, and very, but I I think it would be. Um, right to use the word strange in some ways. He didn't really fit with many um, patterns of, of of his day. Very outspoken. Right. Eccentric. Get, you know, eccentric, uh-huh. that would be the word, uh-huh. exactly. Um, and there's no question that he stirs up something 
in Rumi. Now, I don't believe, as I'm sure you saw in, in my writing, mm-hmm. that everything was created at the moment they faced each other. Rumi had been step by step getting to where he was, and kind of the encounter brought that to um, the to, to the peak, to the to the stage where to this culmination where you know it, it resulted. Um, no, I, do, I don't see that as a, re- you know, we would tend to put that now in our contemporary terms in terms of, you know, was there a sexual attraction right. there? And I, I think that everything available from the context of their time and their relationship would would defy that. But to me, that's really a, not a relevant question. That uh, That's not something I think about. What I think about is what r- resulted out of this encounter mm-hmm. in 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 Rumi's life and what lasted for till the end of his life, um, and, and certainly Shams played a, in, an important part in it, which was, okay, you know all these things, you are a great teacher, you know all this in theory. What about your life? You know, live it. Mm. L- go one step beyond. Um, the the textual and the scholastic live it, and I think he heard that message. And what is also interesting, and maybe people don't very often talk about, is that Champs really wasn't was around for about barely over two years. And after he disappeared, uh, and and Rumi went through great agony and and missing his presence, um, he acquired a kind of calmness that included Champs. And Shams's presence, and you know, he overcame that restlessness, and, and had it all in him. So, in a way, he went through the the turbulence of looking at his life, and then the pain of separation, and then taking another look at everything, and starting to be um, who he was for the rest of his life, which is the author of the Masnavi and the majority of the Ghazal's poems that we have in in hand today. And again, he took that that experience of separation from his beloved friend as a as a way to think about our separation from from yes. from hi, from his separation from god or from the ultimate source of life and you know i mean where this takes me is um i, I think it is actually helpful that that the that the love relationship that out of which rumi drew so much mm-hmm. so many of his analogies um you know, was not a romantic love relationship because our culture, we do tend to simplify that word if we think about comparing <laughs> about the beloved, right? If we think about yeah. um, love and falling in love. But I know what you're saying to me is that um, that love is the core, but, but to think about the many forms that love takes in our lives. I mean, there's also the passionate love that we have for our children, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And that all yeah. of that, that, those are the analogies we have to understand what ultimate love might be like. Yes, and and so have th- th- they are a blessing, and they all have their own place. And in in the end, we don't div- we don't throw them away, or replace them with the divine. They just point in that direction. Mm-hmm. It's like warming up in a way. <laughs> you, it, it's like getting ready for a major um, exercise or physical activity. You warm up gradually. You get yourself to a state where you can do it. Test your abilities. See your problems and issues. Ask your questions. Quarrel with yourself and get ready for it. And I, and I think all these forms of 
um, experience of attachment with other human beings are various ways of, of experiencing that. Mm. I'd like to talk about Rumi's um, Islamic grounding and identity. Yes. Um, yes. That gets lost in <laughs> absolutely in twenty first century translations. In fact, I was yes. a little bit shocked to read the introduction. I mean, Coleman Barks' translations are are the yes. ones that many people have read that became popularized. And yes, um, I was reading his introduction. Let me just find mm-hmm. that on my notes um, to that to the essential Rumi, which you know this is a huge body of work. So even that is a is a subjective judgment call. What is the essential Rumi? But he wrote, um, you know, he suggested that with a mystical writer like this, um, y- you know, he suggested that, his, that, that placing this person in historical and cultural context might, is simply not a central task. <laughs> and he wrote, my more grandiose project is to free his text into its essence. <laughs> But Rumi yeah. Yeah. was born in 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 an Islamic civilization of a, of a Sufi father. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was the head of a madrasa, a religious school at a time yes. when those were great centers of learning. He was in a he was in the city yes. of Balkh, uh, where he was born, was had been in a center of Islamic civilization for five hundred years. So, I do think it's yes. important to understand <laughs> that about him. And I'd like for you to to tell me yes. tell me how you see that. Yeah. I agree with you. Let me let me say one thing about Coleman Marx, though, because um, I do read his translations, and uh, quite a few of them I you know I, I enjoy, and I don't want anything that I say here to detract from that. I think one thing that Coleman Marx has done is um, he has written Rumi's um, ideas in the American poetic idiom. He's made it accessible okay. to the broad readership, and that should definitely be valued. In, and you know, I, don't hear me saying anything else on, on that. But I absolutely agree with you. I don't think you can free people from the context in which they live, and I don't think even if you try to do that, that that serves a, a useful purpose. Um, I don't see Rumi as um, as uh, detached from the Islamic context at all. In fact, I see his work as utterly and completely immersed in the Islamic tradition. I tell you, it would be hard to read a single ghazal, not, not even the Masnavi, which is expressly um, a work with I- theological and mystical intentions, um, but even a ghazal, it would be hard to read a ghazal and not find quite a few allusions to Quranic verses, to sayings of the Prophet, to practices in the Muslim world. So mm. it, it is not possible to free it from that context. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, to me, um, erasing those cultural reference, those religious reference is not really a service to Rumi. I think in, in some ways that's our reaction to the fact that, uh, quote-unquote, institutionalized, uh, institutionalized religion has some negative connotations for us. It kind of evokes a sense of being caught in something that limits our imagination, limits our freedom, our creativity. And so, in a sense, probably Coleman Barks wants to appeal to the more poetic and free and creative side of Rumi. But I don't think we should. I don't think we need to separate him from his Islamic context. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to do that. Now, I, I can give you examples, and I'm, I'm trying to think of some, some good examples. Now, the way first I, I visualize this myself is that he goes through the religion. He lives it 
absorbs it and uses it in his way. So in, in the process, he subverts a lot of things. He hmm. changes a lot of this, reinterprets a lot of things, but he does not step outside of it. He lives in it. He, it's impossible to, to be out of it for him. Not that he, not, I, I don't even think he wants to be out of it, right. out of that tradition or detached from the tradition, but he uses some um, beautiful strategies of subversion. Let me give you an example. Good. You know that in his discourses, um, I, I, I try not to use the word sermons because sermon brings such a specific connotation okay. that's probably not there. But the discourses are when Rumi is sitting um, in a local mosque, in a local g- gathering, talking to people. It's very interactive. It's very informal. And he kind of steps down the pulpit in a way and reaches out to the people. And it's very poetic, even though it's in prose. And he didn't write it down. His students and, and you know pupils and people around him uh, uh, took it down. In in one of these occasions, um, he says he quotes a Quranic verse. That if I might quote the Arabic is in But according to this verse, God says in the Quran, according to the Muslim belief, that we this is the the royal we God we sent down the dhikr and we will be its protector. Now, the word dhikr in Arabic means remembrance. Mm. And um, traditionally, the commentators have defined the word dhikr as the Quran itself. And they have good reason to do so because elsewhere in the Quran, the Quran refers to itself as dhikr and remembrance, in part because humanity is described as forgetful. So the Quran is a way of remembering. Now, he says... Uh, that the commentators have said that this verse refers to the Quran itself, that God says we have given you the Quran and we are, I mean, I am the protector of it. And he said, that's fine. In Nikust, that's fine. Amma inis hast, but there is this interpretation too. And this with this very small step, he sends a great message, we can go beyond the traditional interpretation. Then he says, and what is his interpretation? That God says, "Ma darto shori We have put in you a desire and a quest, and we, God, oh, I, God, am the protector of that desire. Well, that's a very different interpretation. First of all, it opens it immediately to all humanity. Mm-hmm. So God says, I've put in you this desire as a human being, and I'm going to protect it. But he is, you know, used a Quranic interpretation that everyone's familiar with, and then mm-hmm. he's taken it one step further. Okay. Um, he does this all the time. So in that sense, you can say he's not your run-of-the-mill, you know, standard um, person who will not question these theological perspectives. But to say that you could take him out of, you know, tear him out of that context, I don't think that that would be um, doing his work um, justice. I think that one reason um, it, it, it seems, mm, I don't know, easy is kind of a facile word, but it, there is something in Rumi's writing which is, which is so... Uh, so so large, so generous. Um, yes, I, I I don't like the word universal because it. I think it, yes. in some ways it waters things down. I agree with you. Right? Generous <laughs> is a very good <laughs> way. Yes, but, yes. Um, 
Yeah. But it's yeah. easy to read this, and also I think people from many different religious traditions can read this poetry yes. um, or his discourses, uh, or people who are not people of faith can read it and feel themselves addressed and feel their yes. spiritual lives addressed. Yes. And, and I think sometimes, pe- <laughs> yeah, sometimes people feel that if they take away or, or overlook the Islamic flavor of it, maybe that makes him more accessible, more mm-hmm. theirs. Um, and so that you know, I don't know if you were—that's uh, where you were getting with the with your with the point. But yeah, that's well, a like, side I think of that's it that, yeah. I think that's what happens then. Um, somehow that Islamic uh, aspect of him falls away. Um, but as I was reading about him, reading you and others, and looking at him, and I, what I started to see—and tell me if this is right—is that. You know, as I said, I think universality is kind of a wishy-washy word sometimes. But yeah. what I saw instead is that what what Rumi is driving at is um, is not universality, but humanity. I mean, which has the same effect because that is yeah. something that we all yeah. have in common. Yeah. Well, I and I think that I think there is I think generosity and openness um, is. A very good way of putting it. I I do see what you mean with the difficulty with the universality issue. The other things about the other point about that is that, you know, you can never transcend the specific and the particular and the small point, um, and and completely go to the broad context. You have. If you're not rooted in the specific and in the small, in the local, it, you can never see the broader vision. I don't know if I'm clear, uh, you know, articulating this well. No, no, but, um, <laughs> you know, if, if, if uh, for example, um, if how can I how can I put this? Um, if you you have to love a tradition and to be completely immersed in it before you can subvert it mm. and transcend it. Before you, you can l- subvert it from the inside. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you have to love it for you to think that I want this to be better. I want to open it up. I want to make it better and then go forward with it. And just as, you know, you can't break laws in, in an acceptable way unless you know them really well <laughs> and practice them with, with a tradition. That's the only time. And that's why I, what I think he does. He's so well-rooted in the Islamic tradition, so completely aware of the nuances that he says, you know, hey, guys, we can open it up here. Look, look at this. You, you, this is what you always thought, but now look one step beyond. And he can do that precisely because he's rooted in the tradition. And I think it's true also that around the same time that Rumi was entering popular imaginations by way of poetry, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, there were images of Islam suddenly in the news, right, in this post-9-11 right. world, which were so so very different from that. I mean, yes. and, um, you know, you've written that Rumi is a true child of an adventurous and cosmopolitan Islam. And, you know, those yes. are not two words that you would associate with, um, with, Islam. with, yes. the, with the, this, this yeah. very this negative um, headline Islam that we've had these yeah. past years. I'm actually really glad you bring this up because I think one thing that Rumi and others like him, and, and mind you, there are quite a few contemporary Rumis living in various parts of the Muslim world. If, you know, we academically Academics really get to the job of translating their works and making them known um, more um, to the non-speakers um, of their languages. Um, th- but, but going back to Rumi himself, I think that's one thing that's desperately needed at this point to show 
the adventurousness, the surprise, the play, the aspects of his work that now are not normally associated with that part of the world. Mm -hmm. You kind of think that, you know, people just, it's all religion, and it's religion followed in a fairly um, institutionalized and stylized and, you know, planned form. Not at all. I mean, he's playing with it all the time. So I think it would be a very, um, another contribution he could do for us right now, exactly in this post-9-11 environment is to bring out that side of the Muslim culture, that contribution to the world. I think it's true that in Turkey, I mean, I know that Ataturk um, outlawed the dervishes, is that right? Um, in um, modern it, yes. Turkey. And, and, and they, they are not, they, they, any public expressions of kind of ritualistic performance of religion became the thing that kind of um, uh, signified backwardness, and mm-hmm. so yes, that that also was included. So in that's it. an that's an irony. But I wonder about Iran. Um, where are do people still? Is Rumi still as much alive in Iran now as when you were growing up? How does that look? Well, I tell you, I can't keep up with the books that are published in Iran about him. Hmm. And um, yes, absolutely. Um, it you know sometimes people say uh, you know there's this debate whether he was a Persian or a Turk or an <laughs> Afghan and okay. you know which is which is completely really irrelevant mm-hmm. again but um, but for Iranians is is just such a household name you will have in your house you will have a Quran you will have a, a volume of the, the poetry of Hafiz another um, great figure um, from the a little bit later period and um, and the Masnavi of Rumi, um, or the Divan. And then depending, of course, like any other culture, you have people who are more immersed in his work and more familiar. And they know him at different levels, obviously. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, the interest in him has changed or lessened uh, at all. And, you know, I mean, I hear in my conversations that Islam in Iran is just an it's incredibly dynamic and vital and that there's um, great intellectual discourse and study and you know that's just not a story yes. that we hear no I'm, <laughs> about, it's unfortunate right? I mean we, we hear about yes. politicians and so I mean I'm right. just curious you know this subversive playful cosmopolitan quality of, are well, those also know, part uh, of, the, of the discourse in Iran absolutely mm-hmm. you know I, I send out uh, a listserv uh, to my friends called Windows on Iran precisely for that. Just once a week I send out information about Iran that they don't get to see mm-hmm. in the media. Like in the month of June, for example, there's a book fair in Iran. You know how many people visited this past book fair in June in one week? Mm-hmm. Two million people visited oh my the book <laughs> yeah, it's it, it It would be... You know, I send this out, and then I get these messages. Wow, this is happening in Iran. Or I send pictures. I just realized afterward that our visual vocabulary has been affected by oh. this environment as much as our language, and, and, and actually our language, too. And that brings us back to Rumi in some ways. Um, our visual vocabulary has been affected. If we think of Iran, we only have certain visions of unfortunate moments in recent history that get repeated. And our language 
it's impossible to get away from the you know the danger nuclear you right. know all, all of these ideas that unfortunately are are associated and Rumi is so aware of that language can take over our lives and make us not see things he actually has a fabulous verse he says hin sohane taze begu talk jahan taze shavat he speak a new language so that the world would be a new world hmm. can you i mean this is the most sophisticated philosophical approach to language now we talk of language as being constitutive of experience but that's exactly what he said you know get yourself a new language and then you will be able huh. to see a new world and that's definitely what we need to do in relation to that part of the world and certainly with Iran to see the dynamism and and I would ab- agree with you absolutely mm. a tremendous amount is going on that we don't get to hear about we're just not hearing about it yeah mm-hmm. you know you've you've written about um the discourses which you said can also be called sermons but it's not really isn't doesn't have all the connotations of a sermon yes. um you've written an essay which you titled pregnant with god Talk to me about that okay. that title and what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, I mean the the, the issue of um, Rumi and women is something that comes up all the time, and you know people people ask you know what did Sufis say about women? Were they opener to gender issues? And and um, you know in some ways they were. I mean at least you know he had a number of women who were in occasionally we know world in a group that he was or they were present certainly in uh, among his disciples but i would not um venture to present him as a feminist so let's <laughs> make well, that and, and you know very he's a person clear of that his times as well exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. i mean he's living yeah. in a patriarchal world mm-hmm. in which uh, issues are very clearly laid out and and his is not that much different from the rest of the world at the same time with his own ability to see beyond issues he has transcended gender issues in his cosmology of the human evolution so for example he talks about in 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 the same discourses he's talking about his pain of what he has that he wants to tell people he compares himself to a breastfeeding mother whose breasts are so full with milk that they hurt mm. you know so obviously envisioning himself as a breastfeeding mother is not any kind of you know um in, in any um, is not an acceptable to his kind of masculine sensibilities or uh, male sensibilities but on the issue of pregnancy with god um i think is a fascinating trope that he introduces into his sermons step by step um at some point he says that we are all married Right, Mary, uh, pregnant Mary. with Jesus. Uh, yes, mm-hmm. and we have a Jesus of our own. <laughs> so here's a step forward. So yeah. we have a Jesus of our own, but of course we have to let the pregnancy take its full term. We have to take care of it. Remember, you know, in the Ghazal that that you quoted, there is a always need for personal discipline and awareness and work is not going to happen all by itself mm-hmm. but nevertheless we are each a mary and we have our jesus and if we can let the pregnancy take its full term our jesus will be born in other words we will have a god of our of our own a god that has not given to us as a package that has not been imposed on us a god that we have given birth to 
Isn't that beautiful? You, know, you have to piece your God together. You're responsible for your God. Mm-hmm. You can't just take it in a, in, a, in a package form and say, okay, here is what God wants and I'll do it. So um, that pregnancy not only brings in the, the f- uh, feminine image and the uh, um, issue of giving birth, but also gives you responsibility for allowing your God to grow. It, it's also, again, this intimate and <laughs> potentially precarious um, link between humanity and whatever and we can perceive yeah. or yeah. live of, yeah. of divinity, of, of ultimate truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say God. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I, 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 see, I see what you mean. Yeah. And actually, the Sufis very often call it haq, which is the truth. So mm-hmm. they do have uh, all these different ways of mm-hmm. referring uh, to God, which will bring out different dimensions of, 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 the, of this I course. mean, even, even just referring back to where we were a minute ago about, you know, how we conduct ourselves in the world as people and as nations. It's, it is this image of, you know, that we carry within ourselves um, this vast potential <laughs> and also sure. this, this yes. as you say, this smallness, smallness and godliness at the same time. At the same time. And that's, that's the, exactly the thing, that you have to realize the smallness before you can see the greatness. There's two sides of, that's, what his po- that's where his poetic ability comes in, where you can live with an oxymoron, where you can bring paradox and live with it comfortably because it opens up uh, your horizons. But absolutely, all humanity has it, and we have to only be able to look at it and see it in ourselves and see it in, in other people. In, in, but it's hard to talk about it because yeah. he <laughs> because it's he has you know he says it in this in this most beautiful way through the through the pregnancy the, the through the metaphor of pregnancy and he has this amazing way with metaphors really the com- their complexity and and precision is amazing um, for example he you know he's very aware that um, hope is a is a way to help and he he dislikes sadness he de- dislikes asking people to um give themselves a hard time so he says you know sadness is a thief mm. <laughs> it steals your energy mm. you know when you think about it mm. it's a perfect metaphor <laughs> right. you know if you're sad you lose energy so pregnancy is one of those beautiful metaphors i agree with you pregnancy with god when he talked about um I don't know if he, did he talk about this or if he p- pointed at this that that the goal was to become. Did he use the term a perfect human? I mean that comes up in the scholarship around uh, around him. Oh, what what does that mean? I mean, what for him was the goal of all of this? Um, I don't know if a specific goal is defined. Because remember, if that is defined, there would be a final point to the journey, and that defies the whole purpose of the the infinite um, journey. That, but there there is. It's if you if you ask me, it's, well, okay, well, what is this? What is the goal? What where are we? Where are we going? The goal is keeping going. It's not to be happy with anything that always know that there's a stage beyond. 
that you can keep you can still keep going because the journey is in God and God is infinite okay. and so you just you know you, you, you just keep going and then have experience after experience that's that you are able to have at, according to your stage you know I can't help but look at Rumi's life and be struck by how the poles of culture um, and place um, in terms of wh- wh- you know where he moved and where he lived and settled um, are all such important poles in our world today. There's Afghanistan, there's mm-hmm. Turkey, which is somehow becoming symbolic of the struggle to define what is Western right, and what is not. Yes. And yeah. there's, there's Persia, there's Iran, um, which is so much... I think Iran seems, you know, I've talked to him, we have an incomplete and yet very fraught um, picture of Iran right now. And yet I think it's clear that it's very critical. It's going to be a very critical place in the future, whatever happens. Do you ever think about that, about Rumi's legacy and where he came from and how that echoes in the world today? I I consider uh, myself tremendously lucky to be able to grow up with that language but um, to tell you the truth I think that uh, all parts of the world have room have their own roomies hmm. I believe that um, we just need only to explore those traditions and and look for them so in a sense I think he is just one other giant you know one other figure um, who is very important right now. I agree with you. It's very important to read him, to um, look at the vision that he has for humanity because it's so healing, it's so needed to correct some of our short-sightedness and you know, s- some of the problems we, ha- we have but not being able to see the larger picture. So in that sense, I agree with you. But I don't know if I want to think of that part of the world and as having any kind of monopoly on this. Okay. I think if anything, his, his vision is that all humanity is pregnant with God. You know, we all, in various parts of the worlds and traditions, we have people like him. We just have to find them. You know, I'm, I'm aware that we only have a few more minutes, and I, I, you know, I may want to ask you to come back into the studio, possibly to just to read some more poetry, but what have we not talked about? What have I not asked you about? What's really important about Rumi to you that um, it's a place we haven't gone? Uh, I think that we have touched on um, on um, uh, quite a few important and interesting issues. Um, I think the drama in his work, the way he manages to relate to the listeners, to the readers. Mm -hmm. That's something that we probably haven't had um, that much chance to um, talk about. His humor, (laughs) the fact that right in the middle of the most serious discussions, whether it's in the Masnavi or is in one of the Ghazals, right there and then as you just falling for, you know, oh, I have discovered this theory, you know, he subverts it right there and then. Um, because the most important point is to realize, to be able to subvert it, to be able to transcend it. So I don't think we have talked about his particular um, 
poetic skills and and mm-hmm. ways that he uses to to relate to his readers. Mm-hmm. But the examples that we have quoted should um, you know should do that. Um, I think there is a whole lot in the discourses that are fascinating, right. um, because there he's bringing all of this to a broader audience. And so he uses all the poetic ability he has to make it understandable. You know, there's a, uh, if I may just say one more short anecdote. (laughs) He he was visiting, and and again, we don't know if this is true or not, but it's definitely true in terms of what it does for us understanding his tradition. Uh, according to the story, he was visiting Sadradin Ghunavi, who's another great Sufi figure of his time, living in Konya. And there was this young disciple, this figure that was always there. And, um, and he was asking these difficult questions. Not only that, he was never satisfied with the answers that Sadradin would give. So on that day, you know, Rumi turned up, and of course, Sadradin was so relieved. He said, Azrat Khodavandagar, you know, the master is here, and would you please answer this young man? So Rumi approached the, the, the young disciple and he asked this question and Rumi answered it. And the guy said, oh, thank you very much and left. So Sadruddin was so perplexed. You know, he looked at Rumi and said, according to the story, how does the master make such complicated matters so simple? And Rumi looked at him and said, well, the question is, how does the master make such simple matters so complicated? <laughs> Right. So I think that's another really key issue. He's able in the uh, mm-hmm. discourses to show just like the coin that has our smallness and greatness on two sides, the simplicity and the difficulty and the complexity. And so he manages to kind of, through metaphor of pregnancy or whatever else he talks about, um, to bring it to broader audiences. So that would be something fascinating to mm. um, to listen to. Um, but other than that, I don't know. I'd love to read more poetry at some point if you want to. Well, I'd like to do that. I just, I, you know, I, we we can interweave poetry with this conversation we've had, and I think it will make all the difference. And we, we don't really have time in the studio, so maybe we can talk about that as a, I, I hope we can talk, you might be open to doing that. Sure. Okay. Sure. Right. Because we just didn't have time, but we can make this conversation come alive, I think, with, with Rumi's words. And let me ask you, you you ask a question in something you've written. How was one to nurture this God buried like a ruin in the treasure of one's being and let it permeate all of life? <laughs> I wonder how... Mm, I hope you don't want me to answer that. No, well, tell me <laughs> no, this. How it's such yeah. an it's such a wonderful question. It's so beautiful and yes. uh, yeah. but how how does your encounter with Rumi, your ongoing encounter with Rumi, how does it help you mm, live with that question, answer that question in your life? You know, the most important tool he has, which is hope, is what we need to nurture in ourselves. And and hope the energy to move, the energy to go, to never think that this is not worth it or I am done, I'm tired. That's what he's given me. You know, I can I can read them for hours, I can teach them for hours, I can think about it, I can come back to it and be surprised again. So I think that's the gift. The gift is 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 a is a kind of whirling that <laughs> keeps your life um, to be a constant move on the road. And then according to your 
abilities, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can cherish, you get your own rewards. You put it together. You know, again, you piece together your own God. You give birth to your own God. So there isn't, in, in that sense, there isn't really a way that everyone would follow in the same way. It becomes at that level very personalized. Uh, but um, that that's that's what I have taken out of it, which is that desire, that, uh, that hope, that ability to enjoy life, to um, be happy that, that I am, you know, it, it, life, beca- life gains a different kind of meaning when it comes to life, which is words. I guess that's the closest I can. Sorry, when what? <laughs> come when, to. when you said when? Life kind of comes to life with his words. With Rumi's words. Yes. Uh-huh. And then, you know, depending on where I am and who I am at that point and what I'm doing, I, I get something out of it. Mm. And, 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 and I enjoy sharing that with my students and with others mm. um, because, you know, the same. He actually has a fascinating verse. He says, He says, I am fire. If you have doubts about that, bring your hands forth. And you know, it, it is a very um, direct and dramatic. That's the dramatic flair I was talking right, about. Right. You know, bring your hands forward, touch me, and I'll tell you what I'm about. So, you know, that's that's I think that's the greatest treasure to be able to touch it and and keep going with mm. that. Mm. Okay, I want to ask my producers behind the glass if they have any questions for you. I'm sure we're going to be corresponding with you, um, Mitch. Do you? Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. Um, they are a couple of my producers are going to the conference at Stanford in a couple of weeks that you will be performing uh-huh. at, right? In when is yes. that? End of last weekend in January. So yes. they'll come meet you, um, Mitch Hanley. Actually, okay. maybe you could do some of this there. Maybe. Rec- okay. All right. Um, thank you so much. And sure, I think. We may be talking to you again. <laughs> <laughs> that that's fine. I mean, I have um, poetry. I have ghazals and yes. things. I, I I think that you have a great point there. That if it's interwoven with yeah. his own words, it will come to life and in with a different music. way. Yes, as well. <laughs> yes. With music. Yeah. yeah. So okay. we'll do that. All right. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much, Krista. All right. This has been great. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.